This is a podcast about failure. With me, Lola Berry, author, nutritionist, and yoga teacher. Join me as we get to know these guests and learn about how their failures have ultimately shaped their dreams. Welcome to Fearlessly Failing with Lola Berry. We have TV royalty in the house today. Welcome, Sandra Sully, powerhouse, been at Channel 10 for 31 years, accidentally fell into this role, might I say. She's done some pretty incredible things, covered Olympics, met, worked with Oprah when Oprah brought her show to Australia. Uh, She's done really confronting things, like she was the only person who was on air live as the September 11th attacks happened in real time. Uh, She talked about Threadbow and the big landslide there, and she talked about her passion to uncover the essence of a human, and I thought, ooh, that's awesome. She's also a real fanatic about working hard and putting everything that she wants to do in a diary, like a hard diary. I'm the exact same. Like, I still have to write things. I'm very tactile. Anyway, I digress. Enjoy. Sandra Sully is wonderful. She's also got her own podcast called Short Black. Check it out. Sandra Sully, you're awesome. Sandra Sully, I am so nervous to be sitting opposite you. You are an Australian... TV icon, (laughs) journalist, you're a senior editor, presenter, you've got an incredible podcast that I have been binging over the last week. Oh, thank you. And like I've been on your agent's websites, you're an MC. you don't stop, you're the face of charities. I almost think, oh my goodness, where am I going to start? So (laughs) first of all, welcome and thank you. I'm honoured to have you on here. Well, thank you for inviting me. Ah, mate. You've made my day. <laughs> I've flown to Sydney especially for you. So um, Very chuffed. So is it true that you kind of fell into this occupation? You were more in like fitness and health and aerobics world. Can you tell me? Yeah, that? I think I'm looking at a little mini me before, you know, I got old and crotchety and broken down. But, um, yeah, I, I was a health and fitness nut. That was kind of a career before I fell into journalism and a a lady that was in my running class worked in television and she was leaving that job and I'd been talking to her about where she was going and she said, look, I don't have a job for a while but there is a job I know you can do up at Channel 7 in Brisbane and I went, I don't know anything about television. She said, no, 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 I was a production manager, unit manager for a current affairs show. And, you know, that was sort of the beginning of the end, really. Um, you know, I went for an interview and, and got the job. Um, strangely, they made me do an audition and I said, you know, I'm booking air, air flights and organising the office. Why do I need to do this? I thought it was some weird anomaly for television. And, um, uh, you know, I, I got the job and, and off I went. At the time I was doing a Bachelor of Business by correspondence, which was horrendous. Um, but <laughs> I had a, I've got an associate diploma in community rec and health and I'd been overseas as an exchange student, basically with a, a phys ed cohort from another university. And I'd come back and I'd been working full time in health and fitness and we had, you know, a small chain of gyms and I was managing that and I'm sort of a very organised person. So <gasps> I said, heard. you need to be organised, <laughs> um, you know, to, to make the job work. 
Um, and I worked out it was more of a hobby than a career for me, um, although I sit here looking at you now and think mm, maybe I could have <laughs> turned it into a career, but it didn't. I just it wasn't challenged enough mentally, I think. Um, and then, you know, a year or two later I switched degrees and got a cadetship and here I am. So is it true that you were literally doing kind of like two jobs at once where you were kind of juggling and then teaching people at I'm presuming Channel 7 in Brizzy yes. aerobics classes? In the morning before yeah. I went to work. And one of them was one of my bosses. And you were whipping their butt, weren't you? Like you were yeah. quite... <laughs> I'm not sure if you remember. You're probably too young. But, um, you know, Agro from... Yes. I well, Jamie do. Dunn, the alter ego, was uh, in my aerobics classes in the morning and then I'd get up to Channel 7 and, and Agro would be, you know, cracking jokes at me because... <laughs> I'd put him through his paces in the morning. So oh, whenever right. I see Jamie, he's like, oh, blown out a bit, Sandra. So <laughs> like, oh, we all have, Jamie. It's okay. <laughs> you look amazing, by the way. And I have, so I've just been, um, I just said before we started, I'm a Virgo, so I have consumed so much content of you and I found this incredible um, podcast. It's about how, it's about successful people and it's how they work. Mm-hmm. And you, I was like soaking it up. Not, I had to listen to it twice because the first time I was like, oh, I'm learning so much of this. Really? And then the second time. Isn't yeah. it funny? You do what you do. You don't realise it, it um, you know, might affect someone else differently. Well, this is the thing that I'm really excited to talk to you about because working in journalism, news, especially when you started out, that feels like it would have been a man's world. Oh, it was, without doubt. Yeah, and you just paved your way. And the more interviews I've listened to, please correct me if I'm wrong, I feel like you've got this cheeky streak. <laughs> is that true? Yeah, well, when I first started in television, my my boss was a senior political reporter for Channel 7 at the time and executive producer of, of the current affairs show we were on. And the presenter of that current affairs show, uh, Glenn, I used to, you know, call him Gladys, and I'd roll his auto cue and, you know, type up all the scripts and put his makeup on sometimes. In those days, they didn't have full time, full time makeup <laughs> artists. But the EP would say, so, you know, I need tea and coffee. And I said, I need I don't do tea and coffee. So, you, know, you know where the urn is. Those days when, you know, you either had a tea lady or there was an urn somewhere in the kitchen. And I said, look. He said, what do you mean? That's why I employed you. You're here to do things for me. I said, I'm here to help you in the office, but I'm not your gopher. Yeah. Anyway, but I said it all tongue in cheek, but equally I don't drink tea or coffee. I've so heard this about I think you. a big part of it was I don't know how to, I mean, clearly I know how to make a tea or a coffee, but not all that well. Yeah. <laughs> and these days coffee's a whole new degree. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, then it was just a, an urn of hot water and a, a tea bag or, or something. But I just, I said, look, if, if the Premier comes in, okay. <laughs> That's about it. <laughs> was there a moment, so in that like early days where you were like, aha, I've fallen in love with this. This is my jam. Yeah, well, I, I worked as that production assistant on, um, it was called A State Affair, and as television, you know, would have it, um, there was a, a major upheaval in the network and they axed the current affairs show that I worked on on April Fool's Day. And we all got word in the morning and we thought, is this a joke? Yeah. <laughs> Clearly it wasn't and they got rid of half the team and and the network panicked because rival station was launching an hour news and they'd poached Channel 7's main newsreader, mm-hmm. uh, Mike Higgins, who was, you know, a legend in Brisbane. Yeah. And uh, he went to Channel 10 and they went to an hour. Um, Channel 7 went to an hour. So I got absorbed into the newsroom. So I was grateful to have a job, you know, because we've all got bills to pay. Yeah. Um, and then I was really 
superfluous. Um, you know, I was sort of hanging around the office and saying, you know, what can I do? And the lineup producer said, go and watch those foreign feeds and tell me what you find interesting. And, you know, I just loved it and said, can I switch my degrees? They'd offer me cadetship and I ummed and ahed and thought, you know, you have to be born to <laughs> tell the truth and yeah. be a storyteller and all these things I felt, you know, terribly, um, the imposter syndrome hit yeah. writ large really. Um, but I thought if I switch my degrees, I'll feel legitimate. <laughs> and But then I negotiated yeah. that, you know, I needed that time off to attend uni for my classes on a part-time basis while I while I learnt the craft, you know. And a couple of years down the track, I said to the news director, why did you give me that start and not others? And he said, well, you'd worked here two years. TV's mm. a team game. You know how television works. I can teach you journalism. <gasps> what a gift. Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. So it was a man's world, but there are a lot of good men in it. Totally. Well, I've had Dennis Walter on the podcast and in I'm being a Melbourne girl, he's mm-hmm. been like my, the sound I hear it on 3RW and, I, and he's, I said to him, you know, how do you speak the way you speak? He's got that beautiful intonation that you've got as well and like the ability to read an auto cue and not trip. Like I have a massive fear of auto cue. I'm like, <laughs> oh, if I miss a word or it goes too fast or too slow. Yes. And you guys make it so natural. And I said, or I said to him in the interview, He's like, I'm, I said, what What makes that kind of like magic spark that's in him and it's in you? It's in some of like the greats, I would say. And he goes, I'm not doing it for me. I'm doing it for the viewers and the listeners. Like I'm just a vessel. I'm, and I thought, oh, is that the trick to like good journalism, good news? I think so. I think that's actually a really honest thread. If you think it's about you, you've already lost the plot. You should yeah. probably walk away. And and if you don't, you'll be found out as a fraud anyway, that you're too self-absorbed. Um, when I first started, it's funny you talk about the voice. Um, they said my voice, I'd never... I'd never last. So I was going to get voice lessons. And you do learn, like like any craft, you know, I, I you know, did a deep dive and worked out what I needed to do to give myself the best chance of having a crack at that career. So yes, you can lose, learn journalism, but you know, it, it's a, it's, there's a performance aspect to mm-hmm. it. Um, you've got to get your visuals right and, and the tone and voice right. So, you know, I had voice lessons and, and even then I never thought I was anywhere near where I was meant to be, but then I couldn't, I worked out I couldn't be anyone other than me. So just trying to be the best version of me and not trying to imitate anyone else. In those days, Yana Vent was the queen and, you know, she was the pin-up for all of us and she had that sultry, dulcet tone (laughs) and, and, uh, you know, you, you can't mimic anyone else. You can only really try and be the best version of you. So then I just accepted that that's all I can do. Ah, oh, you've, I feel like that advice anyone could take on in any career listening to this. Now, I have to ask you about September 11 and um, how, because you were literally live on air as it was unfolding. Can you share a little bit about that experience? Sure. I think a lot of people, um, arguably, who are listening may not have been born in September 11 or they were too young to appreciate the magnitude of it. But if you were with us that night, um, it was like watching the start of World War Three unfold before yeah. your eyes. And this was before the only cable broadcaster in the world was CNN. Yeah. Um, the, you know, the way people digest and get their news these days is, you know, it's completely changed. It's yeah. a new world order. But then uh, free-to-air television um, and CNN, which was really, you know, in, in the States and a little bit in hotels and things around the country, um, 
you know, that was the only way you could find out what was going on immediately. Um, most of the commercial and free-to-air networks were, were trapped by their bulletin, yeah. um, you know, broadcast times. So it was, you know, quite late at night and um, uh, one of our one of our editors in the, um, I'm just trying to think of that, in News Exchange, Darren, he still works with us now, so we have this bond over September 11. And he alerted the producer um, in the control room because we'd just gone on air mm. that a plane had gone into the World Trade Centre and we just presumed it would be just a small light plane, yeah. nothing significant. And in the commercial break, I think, um, he said to me in my ear, and, and most of the building had emptied because it was quite late at night, we were only going to be followed by sports tonight, so, you know, most people had gone home, including, you know, nearly all the newsrooms, so there was a handful of people, really, that's all. And as soon as we saw the pictures, we knew, you know, it was a jetliner and the rest is history, as it were. But wires went dead. There was no copy. There, you couldn't Google what was happening. It didn't exist. It didn't exist. The internet didn't exist. Is it true you had CNN feeding into your ear during that moment? So you were just like, Correct. Oh, Madly wow. taking notes and trying to regurgitate that in a sensible fashion. And then, of course, the building started coming down and there's no manual... There's no manual for a crisis. You just have to draw on whatever, you know, experience you've got and and hope for the best and know you're going to have enormous learnings from it. And like you were very much, I remember that moment definitely and I remember I woke up to go to school watching at like 6am watching and you, I've heard you say in an interview it's you were a part of history as that's going down and you described feeling like a force almost came over you and you felt like you were almost buckled in like a seatbelt sitting there just like you you had to be there to hold this space for the viewers. It's so true. that it, I did feel like there was an imaginary seatbelt that just came across my body and clicked mm. and I was, not, I wouldn't say trapped, but I was locked in that seat for a ride that, you know, no one will ever forget. And, you know, the pictures we saw that night, most people have never seen again, uh, unless they were tuning in live that night and the broadcast went for hours and then days. Um, you know, most of those pictures where you saw groups of people who knew that they couldn't get back inside the building, they were on the ledge or they are in the windows, shattered windows, looking out, knowing that the fire escapes were jammed or broken and they had no choice but to hold hands and jump. Mm, as it's you just, yeah, it's... You know, and I think the difference for people who woke to that story was, wow, that happened overnight, what does that really mean? And it doesn't resonate. Yeah. But when when you live the trauma, oh. when you're watching it live, you're living with your heart in your throat, you can't believe what you're seeing, you're hoping it's not some terrible dream, um, yeah, that never leaves you, ever, ever leaves you. How, this might sound like a really... Uh, ignorant question, but how on earth do you hold yourself together while something so catastrophic and traumatic is unfolding in front of you and you're holding space for all of Australia that's watching you? Yeah, I think at the time um, I was just aware of the magnitude of the event and that I had a job to do. That yep. that stopped me collapsing into a mess. Um, I had a job to do and, and I think anyone, doesn't matter what you're doing, you don't have to be on the front line, but you almost find that other gear that just traps you into finishing the job and doing the best you can. Mm. Um, the magnitude of it, as I said, the severity, the scale, um, you know, the trauma, the loss, the death, the pandemonium, um, the terror 
was frightening, but it galvanised me into a place that just said, do the best you can and whoever was tuning in, you know, don't don't leave your television television yeah. screens, ring your family and friends. I remember saying, you know, call your family and friends. This is a monumental event and changed the world on a dime that day. Mm. I mean, I, I clearly I still work in the newsroom, but I mean, we, a lot of the younger journalists I work with, you know, they, they know September 11, they know it changed the world, but whether they were that cognizant at the time, you know, many of them weren't. And But I'm working with people that worked on the bushfires late yeah. 2019 and then COVID 2020, and they have found those two experiences traumatic um, and profound, and there hasn't been a story since September 11 other than the bushfires and COVID. They have been the biggest events in, in you know, over a decade mm. um, for all of Australia, if not the world. Oh, thank you so much for sharing that because, okay. yeah, I was uh, just, I've heard you speak about it before and I, I, the same thing just happened to me then. You get the goosebumps. It's so visceral hearing. And you're kind of numb. You're numb yeah. to everything you've seen um, because it's it's too big, I think, to process. It, yeah. it took everybody days to process actually what happened, how it happened and what does it mean. Yeah. Oh, my goodness, there's so much I can talk to you about. <laughs> there are so many things that you've covered, beautiful, amazing things like the royal wedding, which yeah. looked like a lot of fun. I saw you getting into a carriage on a YouTube <laughs> clip. Um, you know, but then Threadbow and Stuart Diver, which mm. would have been really same kind of that really intense kind of. Oh, yeah, Stuart Diver. That was, you know, five days of just wrenching drama, yeah. waiting for them to rescue him from. And, and I'm terribly claustrophobic, so I was traumatised the whole time. Yeah. Thinking that I, I don't know how, I, I still don't know how he survived to this day mm. because I can't imagine. That's what people joke about. You, you'd go on, I'm a celebrity, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and I say, Never. Uh, and I get asked all the time by the network and they know that it's it's a definitive no. Yeah. <laughs> Mostly because people don't need to see me in, you know, in my natural state. That's bad enough for my husband really. But <laughs> but realistically, um, I couldn't get into those small spaces and I cannot deal with snakes. They freak uh, me out. So yeah. the whole thing is yeah. just, you know, it's just not. Why would I do that to myself or anyone else? <laughs> Don't move to Byron Bay. I've just moved to Byron Bay. I've seen two snakes already. Oh, gosh. Last <laughs> night on the news we had this snake. I saw yeah. it. <laughs> on someone's windshield? Yeah. It was a monster python and it had been under the bonnet and they started driving and it slithered out onto the windscreen while they were driving. Yes. I would have had a heart and attack and run off the road. And the windscreen wipe was going. <laughs> I, was, I was, yes. Freaking okay. out. Uh so what about, so there's some of the more kind of like real like serious and traumatic things you've covered, but like you've done so many fun things as well, like, and you're so passionate about sport and hockey yeah. and like there's some moments of your career where you're like, oh, yeah, that Pinch was. myself. Yeah, what kind well, of. Well, being at, in Atlanta for the 96 Olympics was amazing and, um, you know, the hockey team didn't know that I'm a passionate hockey player but loved it at school and played for a club for a long time and so I was there when the women won gold. Oh. And then I managed to get on the bus back from <laughs> back from, back from um, uh, the gold medal performance back, I think it was to, you know, the village 
sort of yeah. centre where they were all celebrated yeah. and I was the only journal on the bus at the time and I'm now currently the Vice President of Hockey Australia and one of my board, fellow board directors was on that bus and I don't really remember her and she has no recollection of me because <laughs> she was so euphoric. Um, but, you know, being there when Muhammad Ali lit the yeah. lit the cauldron and, um, you know, being in Victoria, Canada for the 94 Commonwealth Games. But, yeah. but back to 96, you know, Kieran Perkins was, was barely qualified and through lane eight and then won gold. <sighs> Susie O'Neill, you know, Madam Butterfly, because I'm a mad swimmer, I love swimming, and yeah. growing up in Queensland, you know, they were some of my heroes, Shane Gould. Oh, um, so to you'd be- love Liesl as well. She's a good friend of mine and she's yeah. been on this podcast and she I love hearing the way she talks about sport. It's that same oh. innate passion that is deep within, right? But they're the most magical stories, you know, yeah. they, and they often end in tears and disappointments and that's the human, you know, story. But generally there's no death and despair. So that's always a relief. I think the human story sport is a, a wonderful platform to showcase the human spirit. Absolutely. And also the hard work that they've, oh. four years minimum, minimum oh, to yeah. get to that one moment. One that. moment on a dime in a split second. Oh. can change your life. Oh. You know, Stephen Bradbury coming in third. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. yeah. That, that's the role of the dice in life, isn't it? Oh. And the okay. magical moments when they happen. You know, it might be an AFL grand final. It might be it might be horse racing. You know, I, I wasn't yeah. ever enamoured with horse racing. And then I, through 10, I got to work on when 10 had the broadcast rights yes. for Spring Carnival. Yeah. We had them for about 24 years and I worked on that for about seven years. And I did most of celebrity and fashion and whatever. But for the feature race every day, because they weren't interested in what was going on in the in the car parks, I would scoot across down to the finish line, yeah. stand next to PD, Peter Donegan, and watch the Melbourne Cup being yeah. run, watch them finish, cross the finish line and then come in and check weight and see, yeah. you know, see the owners and the trainers and the jockeys and, and you know, again, another incredible chapter in history is oh, written. Well, my dad's an ex-equine vet, so we would always go to the race. That was part of my upbringing, being a Melbourne girl as well. And I, as I kind of worked in media more, I'd get invited to, you know, the birdcage and whatnot. I'd always sneak out and meet dad at the real birdcage where the horses. Bird birdcage. You know, I, like I don't have a lot of time for it. No, but with I the get... real one where the horses are. Is yeah. that called the? The mounting yard. Yeah. yeah. That's where or I the up... parade ring. Where that's where the real dad. stuff happens. Yeah. When people go to the races, and they don't even watch a race. I, I think really, you know, even if it's a five dollar bet, just have a bit of fun, yeah. but watch the race. Yeah, watch yeah, the yeah, race. Yeah. Oh, uh, something I love about you. This is quite nerdy, but you're a diary girl, and <laughs> you're all about your time. And you get up around six six thirty. Can you take me through a day in the life, like a regular day in the life? A regular day in the life. Um, look. At the moment, I'm reading two bulletins for two states. Yep. So I kind of have in my diary e-marked every day, 12.30 till 8, um, and that's kind of blocked out. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have a shared diary with my husband and I have another shared diary with my husband and daughter. So we all share this diary just to sort of, you know, my daughter works part-time at KFC yeah. and I want to know what hour she's doing so I understand on a Saturday she's not available, whatever. Um I, you know, schedule in the podcasts and then prep time ahead of that in the days or so leading up to make sure I've got quarantine time to do what I need to do. Mm. I'm in the middle of of moving house, launching um, a new book for International Women's Day as I do every year and I'm moving house again as I did exactly the same week (laughs) this time last year. I'm a glutton for punishment but um, I've got moving down to a fine art more or less. It's still traumatic. So I will schedule in like tomorrow morning I'm getting the treadmill 
treadmill moved. I'm staying in my building but just moving down a couple of floors. And so I'll schedule all of that in because if I don't, my husband doesn't know why I am up at Sparrows. I need to make things happen. Yeah. Um, and, I, and, you know, I've been someone when it was a handwritten diary that... And I'm still handwritten. I've got four pages of notes <laughs> about you. <laughs> I'll show you my electronic diary. You'll just die. <laughs> but um, when I had a handwritten diary, um, I would... And when I, you know, taught in gyms, people would say to me, I just don't have time. And we all get busy. But if I put my workout, their diary entries. So that, you know, if I can't make it, I don't deal with the guilt. I just move it. Yeah. So that you mentally say, okay, I haven't made it today, Mm. but where else can I fit three decent workouts this week or Mm -hmm. four and schedule that in? Yeah, and, and I've then, heard you say once it's in the diary, you don't worry about it again. Correct, it's out of my head. Yeah. So I schedule in, you know, the must-dos that I that I can't miss and then you can see your gaps. And, you know, when you do a job like I do, you do need quite a bit of quiet time where you can just withdraw and, yeah. you know, it might be read, catch up, prepare, um, chill, watch a bit of crap on television, you know, whatever it is. might be housewives, doesn't matter, something to switch <laughs> yeah. off. But I make sure uh, and my producer Ali's sitting here saying you don't always make enough time for yourself because <laughs> yeah. we all push the envelope, don't we? We all squeeze in too much. But then I look and say, okay, I know I'm going to go a little bit crazy until March 12 after International Women's Day and then I'll say no to a lot of things because I physically, I believe there's always a physical lag to the mental and emotional traumas that you go through and commitments that you have and you do need time to recover. I love it and I love that you, I've heard you talk about the way you schedule in your movement and exercise, being a yogi myself and loving a bit of Pilates, which I know you're a Pilates girl as well. It's so important once it's in the diary you're there, you've signed that kind of deal. It's a contract with yourself. Yeah, I, I love it. But you, you, because it's a contract with self, you can adjust it. Yes, of course. Because I know you're a, a fitness nut and, and I was and when you get a bit older, Lola, body parts break down and, you know, I had major foot surgery last year and it's about being kind to yourself. So, you know, I'm keen to get back to the gym because I need to. But I don't want two or three false starts. So I've given myself six to eight months to make sure that when I'm ready to go back, I can commit. And, you know, I was talking to a friend yesterday. He said, no, 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 you should just go now and schedule. And I said, no, because the guilt of failing myself sometimes, um, I wouldn't say failing myself, but false starts can really affect your journey. Totally. You've got to be realistic. Yeah. So if I'm more realistic about when I'm ready to get back into weights and boxing and other things, then when I'm ready to go, I'm ready to go. And it brings a sense of clarity. And I feel like you're a human that does quite well. with. You're very clear to talk to and I love it. <laughs> uh, my question, my next question, I've seen you do GMA back in. Oh, gosh. At, oh, my goodness. It's so, it is such a joy to YouTube you, by the way, my friend. <laughs> I love my hair. I love it. And there were fringe days oh, as yes. well. Um, but how did it go? Because obviously that's quite a different format to working in new. Like it's slightly different to working in one's 
I imagine, do you write for, I'm giving a really roundabout way of asking this, but like for news, do you write your own auto cue? and are you? Or you can't write at all you? because it's just too much. And yeah. you, you rely on the team who news gather all day and yeah. intros are put in and you, you know, most times, but probably 95% of the time you pre-read that intro yeah. before it's come, you've got a chance to play with it. At least 5 to 10% of the time it may almost be sight unseen. You yeah. literally have a, you know, 10, 20 seconds beforehand or a wow. minute beforehand to sort of process process what this, you roughly know what the stories are, but what the intro is going to say, where are the key points in each sentence that yeah. that um, are the salient points that you've got to kind of stress. Um, you don't always get a lot of time. But GMA was a really weird experience because I had not long come to Sydney and I'd been on the road and I was sort of second string political reporter yeah. um, to Paul Mullins who was, you know, I was, he was my kind of mentor and he was terrific. But Cut a long story short, one of the execs in the station walked around on a Friday afternoon and they had told us, told the network they were going to relaunch GMA and it was going to be radio with pictures. And they'd announced the male host but they hadn't announced the female co-host. And in those days, you know, when GMA finished up in its day, it was Carrie ann you know, yeah. the great CAC and there was Mike Gibson and Tim Webster and a, and a range of co-hosts and everyone was wondering who the female co-host was going to be. And this senior executive in the network came around to the newsroom on Friday afternoon at 3.30 and he always used to call me Sandra. I said, <laughs> yes, Mr Bateman. I said, Sandra, what are you doing on Monday? I said, well, I'm just, you know, here, news. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, what do you want me to do? He said, well, can you come in early? I said, okay. He said, so um, I just want you to be part of the show Monday. I said, but you're launching a new show Monday. A brand new show. There's been television ads, a massive campaign. Who's the mystery co-host? And he said, yeah, look, we're not making any announcements, but um, we just need you to sit in because we haven't quite made the decision yet and we're launching Monday. Oh, wow. And I said, I've never done a live television yeah. interview. I've never done live TV. Yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, and then what I came out with was, what am I going to wear? He said, <laughs> Just go down to wardrobe and there'll be something in CAC's wardrobe. And I've had this funny conversation with CAC many <laughs> times see. that I said, I did not go into your wardrobe <laughs> dressing room. Besides, you have too many sequins for me. <laughs> We're both from Queensland. I'm not wearing yellow, although I did wear a lot of yellow, <laughs> which is my favourite colour. But um, I found something to wear and, and no rehearsals, no nothing. I was sweating bricks all weekend, just freaking out and sat in the chair like a deer in the headlights. And and then it was on and off for the next five months. And then by the end of that year, I think they axed the show. They act, Mike Hammond was the host at the time and then he left and then it was Ronnie Wilson and I where we formed a good friendship and, yeah, it was just mad. I mean, it was oh. mad, but I got through it. Because <laughs> it would feel quite different, that kind of format versus news, obviously, because you were like in the moment and... Well, we had Tim Bailey doing um, Bailey in the Boot in those oh. days where he was travelling around Australia <laughs> and turning up and people had to unlock the boot and there was prizes in the boot. So there was a lot of light and shade and James Valentine was doing a music <sighs> segment and... Um, yeah, like there was a lot of light and shade, yeah. so I felt like I could breathe. I had moments yeah. where I could breathe, again, where I could find those moments yeah. to steady myself <laughs> before I had to do the next thing. One of my favourite things I found of you on YouTube is there's a segment and it's about sheep and you <laughs> and your co-host, you get the giggles. Brad McEwen. Right, you fully get the giggles and you still hold it together like for the... Only just. As you're like, I'm going to do this and you're going to weather and you're just like Losing giggling it. your way through it. How often does that happen? It 
And is it as fun as it looks? Because it looks so much fun when you lose it. It was very authentic. And yeah. I think if it's not authentic, you know, viewers can actually detect that. Yeah. So we have a play of the day, which we still have as part of our sports segment, yeah. but it was a big thing when it was sports tonight and late news. And generally I would have previewed the play of the day and, you know, some nights I didn't get a chance, but those guys had secretly kept the play of the day from me. And, um, oh, that that was the one on the Coolum golf course with the kangaroo when he was playing with his testicles. <laughs> So that was, you know, Seve Ballesteros, I think, was on. You know, we had all these international golfers and, and, and they had done, you know, music sound effects as, you know, as a bell ringing as the kangaroo was playing with his testicles. <laughs> and the night with the sheep, um, I'd just come back with a funny line and Brad and I shared a great sense of humour and and uh, we were really good friends and he would, when he started laughing, I, I just couldn't help myself and we barely got through the end of the show. And he, he always would sit there during weather, which that night, I think after that, I said, you can't stay here because I can't finish the show when you're just giggling and laughing. So it was, it was very real and it was oh, loads of fun. I loved it. I watched it three times. I was like, i got to watch it again. It's so good. So I've heard you describe what makes for a good interview and podcast world, you're interviewing people and I was really nervous today and, I, like, I've got four solid pages of notes of you and I, I probably set aside about eight hours per guest just because I would rather know... More than not enough. ...and be able to just go with you yeah. and not worry. Um, how, what makes a good interview? Well, I think if you can elicit the true sense of someone, you know, you really want... It's, it's always nice if you can find out something other people didn't know so that there's a point of difference. Yeah. Um, but, you know, for someone like me who's been around a while and you've done too much homework so you probably know nearly everything. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you won't elicit anything new, I don't know. Um, and and just getting the essence of someone. I think that's that's the key, you know, what makes them tick. Have you ever done an interview though and you're like, oh, gee, I've been throwing a curveball here or this person's not giving me too much and have you just kind of had to power on through? Has that happened before? Yeah, many times and often that's a reflection of you having not done enough homework. But when I first started in journalism, I was sent out as a as a cub reporter, a baby, and mm. there was an international music superstar that had come to Brisbane and for the likes of me, I can't recall her name at the moment, but she was a, a soulful older woman, soulful singer, African-American woman, and I didn't know anything about her or her mm-hmm. her history or her career, um, but I was sent at the last minute and I went down and asked, you know, a couple of questions and she just called me on it and humili- humiliated me. Mm-hmm. Um, but she was actually really mean-spirited and when I got back I said to the news director, you know, I, I was ill-prepared and he said, yeah, you probably were, but equally she was mean. Yeah. And that made me feel a bit better because, you know, we all start somewhere. Yeah. And I think you just need to be kind. And, you know, in life um, you'll see, you'll be sitting with family and friends and they'll be watching an interview and they'll be, I think, you know, mean to the journalist about saying, why did they ask that question? It's like, well, everyone does the best they can at the time and a lot of it isn't this you know, some, sometimes there's a gotcha moment where it's a deliberate setup, but that's not in my armory. You know, that's not who I am. I don't think you get very far that way. Well, then know? they're going to put a block up, aren't they? And mm. there goes the essence of the person, which is the the main goal that you. Well, want my to news share. director said to me that day. Look, a she was mean spirited. She was there to promote her tour in Brisbane, yeah. and she's been around the block a couple of times. She would have known you're going to get cub journos. Um, the media is already, you know, thinly stretched and 
uh, he just refused to run the story and promote her tour. Oh, great. And he said, yeah. you know what, it's karma. He had your back. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. So for people listening going, okay, Sandra Sully has the dream job and how do I how do I break or get into this industry, um, what advice do you have for people that are like, I want to be a journalist, I want to read the news, I want to, you know, be in media? Well, I meet a lot of people that say, look, you know, I, I just want to be a newsreader. I said, well, you better rethink your career plans because mm. you just don't sit there and read the auto cue. You have to want to be a journalist and totally. then learn your craft. Um, if you want to work in television, you've got to understand it's a visual medium. So you've got to look at your appearance and try to be find someone that will be honest and objective with you. So I remember mentoring a young journalist who was very theatrical and she's led a successful career. But um she would wear zany hats and scarves and, you know, but that was who she was. And I said, look, imagine imagine sitting inside your home and there's a knock on the door and when you open that door, first impressions, people see you before they hear you. And so if you've got a zany hat and a mad scarf, who, WTF, what what do you yeah. want? Yeah. I don't, I don't understand this picture. So you've got to role play to a degree in terms of how you present yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, if you want to be taken seriously, you need to dress the part, sound the part, be the part, do your homework. Um, so, you know, do your research. The other thing is in television, it is a team game and you've, you've got to be a nice person. Not that, every, not that you know, it's full of nice people, but it is full of team players, people who understand that you're only as good as the team around you. And, and I sit there at the end of my colleagues' day and tell their story that they've worked all day yeah. to tell. Oh, I love that. I'm going to ask you a really nerdy question. Uh-huh. There's two TV shows that I'm obsessed with that are kind of like a behind the scenes of your life right. in effect. So one of them is called Newsroom. It's a Aaron Sorkin Another um, TV one. show. Watched it religiously. Oh, wonderful. And the other one is Morning Wars, which is the... Watch that too. Apple TV. Yeah, what did you think of the two shows? Well, they were both great. Oh. Uh, both great because, you know, it's it's a slice of what we do. Uh, how real is it? There were elements that were clearly dramatic and made for television, so it's not entirely mm. accurate, but there are elements and threads that are, are quite real. Um, I think broadcast news, that's a movie you might want to watch one day and it's, it's quite old, but that was probably the most honest reflection of what it can be like when it's so close to air and yeah. and so desperate to get it right and get it to air. The mad scramble for the deadline, that's probably the most authentic. But, again, they're all dramas, so of they're course, highly dramatic. Of course, But even coming in here today, we're recording this at Network 10 and walking past the Studio, Studio 10, 10 and this, there's an energy that comes with like seeing all the cameras set up and there's people walking around and you know those people are probably working on a story for tomorrow or later, you know, like. That's the great thing about this building and we've been here for, oh, gosh, nearly 15 or more years, but television is at the core of the building. So it's almost like an atrium and all the offices are three and four floors around the studio. The new studio, Studio 10, is at the base of the building and at the centre of what everyone does. So with a lot of new staff, sales, our sales office years ago used to be, you know, in North Sydney. And when, when everybody moved back in, they actually see live television being made every day. And that's infectious Mm. because the magic of television is right in front of you. And um, the annoying part of that is people forget at the lift well and walking down the stairs 
next to the yes. studio <laughs> that they're busy talking about their day or their date night and you're, and you're, you're gesticulating to them wildly going, come on here. <laughs> I noticed that when I came up and Ali brought me up and I was swigging my coffee back and I was chatting like, oh, da, 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 and Ali's quite quiet and I'm like, oh, pick up the cue, Lola, you're right near the studio. <laughs> I probably caught myself a little late. You'll but- <laughs> often hear the, um, the elevated ding, you know, and yeah. then our guys in dispatch who are probably the best people in the building because they're so kind with everyone and patient, especially in the world of, you know, home delivery with, Mm. uh, you know, um, couriers Mm. (laughs) and they've got a trolley and when they're delivering parcels, (laughs) I look up and go, guys, we're on air. (laughs) (laughs) Hold the trolley. Hold the trolley. This is really important. (laughs) I love it. little sneaky behind the scenes. So good. Uh, we, I can't believe we're coming to the end. So I've got one more question. Is there anyone, and you talked about, you know, doing Olympics and wonderful things. Is there anyone, because I've seen you, you got involved with Oprah when Oprah was here doing a show. Is there that was you've wonderful. Met? Yeah, she's in, incredibly talented, but the passion that oozes out of her, I'm just like, oh. Yeah, but there was a strength and yeah. presence that she had that um, was unmistakable. I remember sitting in her presence and thinking there's an aura about her that's incredibly powerful. Mm. Um, And, you know, when she brought the show to the front of the Opera House and she'd been via Hamilton Island and had done the tour down under um, and then we we did her private show at the Botanical Gardens and I got to interview her and, and look, you know, I just felt like a deer in the headlights. But at the same time, I just thought you're a nice person and you won't be mean. Um... I didn't want to be, you know, a fangirl, but inside. And it's not to say, you know, I love everything about Oprah, but she's a masterful communicator. Yeah. And you can't help but not be in awe of her ability to command a moment, Mm. you know. So when she grabbed the microphone, she just had everyone in the palm of her hand. Everyone just stood there. And as I said, you don't have to love everything about Oprah but we're in the communications business, so when you admire one of the best in the world, yeah. up close and personal, that was a bit of a treat. I've spoken to other people that have interviewed her and they said interviewing her is like she holds eye contact. She'll often like hold your hand. She'll feel very connected to you mm. and give you yes. so much. Yes. And, and then you try not to be overwhelmed by yeah. that moment because you're thinking, oh, my goodness, Oprah's holding my hand. <laughs> <laughs> is there anyone else? Is there anyone else that you're just like, oh, that was Amazing. Oh, gosh. I know I'm putting you on the spot. No, no, because I don't really want to elevate celebrity. They get enough. Um, yeah. Sometimes it'll be it'll be someone, an everyday Australian that, that's done something yeah. truly remarkable that, that is as powerful as any celebrity on the world stage yeah. who's got a heart bigger than the outdoors, who's as generous and has the largesse of spirit that's overwhelming, that brings you to tears, that you find it difficult to encapsulate in words what a remarkable human being they are. They're they're the ones that make me emotional, you know. Yeah. There's a word in yoga called dharma and it means when you meet someone and they're living on their purpose. Yes. And so I feel like when you meet someone that's living true to themselves and the essence of themselves like Mm. you described, that's the like... It, it's something, it it's feels a wow esoteric, right? It feels mm. bigger than us, yes. you know? Yes. So I totally get that. 
Sandra Sully, you are awesome. Oh, uh, you're I, kind and blind. <laughs> I'm not. I'm like I said. I have been binging your podcast, Deborah Lee Finesse episode. I love. So passionate. I know. She's you know? she's wonderful. So thank you. No, it's no, been no, a treat. I can't thank you enough. Um, you are a joy, my friend. Oh, thank you so much. That's a wrap on another episode of Fearlessly Failing. As always, thank you to our guests. And let's continue the conversation on Instagram. I'm at Yummo Lollaberry. This potty, my word for podcast, is available on all streaming platforms. I'd love it if you could subscribe, rate and comment. And of course, spread the love. Spread the love.